You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Our study of Hebrews continues. Uh, my count is correct. This is the 13th lesson in the book of Hebrews, and tonight we're in the 8th chapter. All things are as we have made note in the theme of the book, all things are better and greater in Christ. And we are tonight uh, on the uh, uh, section where it tells us we have in him directly a better covenant and better promises. And we begin to look at that covenant and we begin to look at that uh, uh, those promises tonight in chapter 8 through Jeremiah uh, in his instructions in the 31st chapter of Jeremiah quoted at great length, probably the longest quotation, I believe, of any solid block of text from the old to the new, but giving us hope of what we have in Christ and seeing is how long that God has intended this. This is a discussion that continues to be about the priesthood of Christ. We had that introduced for us back in, uh, in chapter 5, but then exhortations on immaturity and even falling away as the audience, not all of them at least, were, were ready for this, uh, even though concerning it seems them in whole and in large, at least, the author had uh, a better hope for them and of the things of salvation. Then we got back to the priesthood of Christ. We saw it was not like the priesthood of Aaron, the priesthood of those who lived uh, under the law, and the priest of who were appointed under the law, but Christ outside the law, uh, superseding the law, was made a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so we saw that was necessary, as we have just but the briefest review, in chapter 7, verse 11, for if perfection had been through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, and not designated according to the order of Aaron? So priest, the perfection did not come by this priesthood. The law, it will say in the scriptures, made nothing perfect. Uh, Paul would go so far in the book of Romans to say in regard to salvation, the law was weak and even useless. But now we have Christ, who is neither weak nor useless, but brings full forgiveness, complete propitiation, full atonement, absolute and total pardon, full justification by his work. So verse 26 of chapter 7, we have these concluding words of that chapter, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. So we have the once-for-all sacrifice of definitely more of which we'll speak in chapter 10, where we're perfected for all time uh, by his work. And now we have, in chapter 8, as we begin tonight, uh, we have the, the, the exact meaning told to us. We have the, the main point. Uh, we have the, the, the summit of it all. As uh, the writer will say in chapter 8 to begin, he says, now the main point of what has been said is this. And so there needs to, there's no need of drift and exegesis. There's no need of guessing. 
There's no need of a misapplication. There's no need of a, of a misstep. We're told what the big point of this is. Now, the main point, verse 1 of chapter 8, in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true temple, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since they are those who offer gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he has also is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect the new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their minds, and I will write them on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to disappear. So we note the reiteration the main point, the summation, in verses 1 through 5 of what we had in chapter 7. So we won't need to spend as much time on that because it's a reiteration of this grand conclusion of the priesthood of Christ and what it means to us. But we find it says he sat down. But then we find that God is going to be setting some new things up, and he's intended to have something to set up. It wasn't uh, by invention of men. It wasn't by construction of wayward Jews. It wasn't by uh, people saying, hey, let's do it this way, that we got Christ in his place and we got his church. We got it by what God set up and what God had predicted some 600 years or a little, maybe 650 even in advance. God gave prophecy of what was coming and how it would come. But then as we see, as God setting up this new thing, that God set up these things in Christ. He's also going to be taking something old down. So we got up and down tonight. Christ sat down, God set up, and God will be doing some taking down. So the main point was this again, verse 1, that we have this high priest, that he sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. You think about all the temple and tabernacle furniture. There were tables. There were uh, candlesticks, uh, there were altars, there was an ark, and there was a mercy seat, 
But you know what? There wasn't a chair in it. The mercy seat was a place for God. A mercy seat was a place that you came and approached and you offered some of that incense. But one thing the priests didn't do in the temple is they didn't sit down. Their work, as it were, was never done. There was never a time for sitting. When would they sit? Uh, would they uh, sit uh, after the six o'clock service, the sunrise offering? Would they sit at the nine o'clock? Would they sit at the noon? Would they sit at the three or would they sit at the six? Would they sit after the new moon festivals or would they just be needing to get ready for the next one? Even the things that were yearly, they did, but once a year, they still kept coming. And so there was always a new priest needed. There was always this continual work, this continual offering that needed to be done. And so these priests came, as it would say in Hebrews 10 and verse 11, they would stand daily, stand. They stand daily, offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. And so that sit there, which is what Christ is doing at the right hand of God, sitting on a throne in heaven with the majesty on high, Christ is sitting in the highest place where these priests had to stand and work and keep shuffling around and keep toting and keep burning and keep doing all these things. They had to do that continually. So, no, it's not too much to say uh, that uh, it's a big point that he sat because it'll say in chapter 10, those others stood. So he got to sit down because he was done. They were never done. And so he is a minister in the sanctuary and true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not men. And so we think about that glorious tabernacle, that one of which, if you're reading your uh, Bible in a year or, or some kind of uh, full Bible reading, you get to Leviticus and it seems like the descriptions of fabrics and fasteners and fittings and joints and construction never ends because it was given in such detail. And so th they built that, and then that tabernacle, uh, they could move. Uh, they could strike it down with its uh, multiple layers of of, uh, uh, of roof to keep it waterproof, the outer witch being that uh, very expensive and fine porpoise skin, all those fine tapestries that made the wall, all those gold-plated acacia wood uh, fittings and uh, uh, and construction that made the various furnishing, all that stuff rigged with poles so the Levites could carry it, all that stuff that could be struck and moved to another place. And so they had this place that was of earth. And I'm sure by the time that David built the, tabor, uh, built the temple or just desired to build the temple and made all things ready for Solomon to actually do the building, I'm sure that that uh, wonderful thing being several hundred years old was getting a bit shopworn, was getting a bit ragged in the weather, in the storms, and in the various moves, in the folding and unfolding, and furling and unfurling, and setting and moving. It was of this world, though glorious it was. And it needed it after a time to go. But here is the greater ministry of Christ in a greater tabernacle, in a greater temple, in the, the holy place that is with God, not the one just declared by God and set by God, but the holy place where God actually is. And so Hebrews 9, it'll tell us, excuse me, 10 and 19 later on, it'll tell us that brethren, 
we have a confidence to enter that holy place by the blood of Jesus. And so there's the better ministry. Here's the better hope. These priests, verse 3, they were appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. All right. All right. That's chapter 5, verse 1. A priest is taken among men to, uh, on behalf of the things pertaining to God, to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Here came Jesus. He offered a sacrifice for sin as well. They'd had lambs uh, all through the Old Testament. Through the Old Testament, how important are sheep and shepherds and lambs and sacrifices? And what is the beginning of the New Testament? John says as he sees Jesus, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or the prophecy of Simeon, he's the one who will save his people from their sins. Or the things in Matthew, that he's God with us, he's Emmanuel. They they would have learned, and it'll be pointed out that these, these sacrifices for sin didn't take away sin. Uh, the innocent uh, animals and spotless animals were offered for the guilty, but they were never sufficient. And we come to find that the, the sin uh, must rest on somebody, and these animals are not enough. And it's revealed through the Old Testament that there's going to be a person come and bear those sins. And then Jesus came and bore them and suffered, as Isaiah said, that stroke that was due. And so having borne the punishment, having innocent blood and greater blood than ours to offer, he did that. And on the earth, he couldn't have been a priest, verse 4. If he were on the earth, he would be no priest at all. No. Christ doesn't reign in literal Jerusalem, in literal earth, under the old law. You know, some of our premillennial friends, that's what they think is going to be the culmination of things, that Jesus will come back and there'll be a restored law and a restored Israel and uh, there'll be all this literally on earth. He can't be a priest here among the Jews uh, as uh, those who serve and did under the law, because on earth he'd be no priest. But in heaven he's the priest after Melchizedek, and he's the eternal priest. We, we don't want him back on earth. We want him up where he's our priest. We want him up in heaven at the right hand of God to bring us there as well. So if he were on earth, he'd be no priest at all. Since there are those who offer gifts and sacrifices by the law, but they serve an... <laughs> They serve in a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. It was a copy. There was a pattern uh, shown, and uh, it was patterned to, to some degree, obviously. After the things of heaven, uh, I think our familiarity with the temple and, uh, and now also with the things of the church, when we get together uh, in heaven uh, with the redeemed of all times, I think there's going to be a certain familiarity about the place. It's going to feel like the home we've always were looking for but never had seen. There's going to be a certain commonality of things. Why? Because God showed him a pattern, Moses, a pattern of the heavenly things, and he said, make it exactly like the pattern shown on the mountain. Make it like that. I'm going to show you, and you're going to make it, you're going to make that. It's a copy of the great thing, and uh, you're going to get to make a uh, something from that pattern. Follow the pattern. There's a good lesson on authority right there for you. Make it by the pattern that God showed. But what we find is, so there's this vision he sees that's something of heaven. And by following that, he built the tabernacle. And then uh, when they built the temple, it was basically the same thing doubled. 
Nearly every dimension was doubled. There's a few that weren't, but the temple was uh, the tabernacle permanent and writ large. And now we got the church, which is the spiritual essence of that thing, and a different kind of copy of the things of heaven, which we make after the pattern shown to us in the book of God after the things of Christ. And so here was Christ, that he's sitting down in the most important place that there ever was, having done the most important work that was ever done. And now we see that it's God who set this up. So Christ could sit down with God because it was God who set these things up. And here comes the quote uh, concerning uh, this from Jeremiah. Now it says he's obtained a more excellent ministry. So again, summation statement, the greater ministry of Christ, greater than all the priests of all the earth, by as much as he's the mediator of a better covenant. We'll particularly have that point in chapter 9, and it's been enacted on better promises. It's also a better sacrifice. That'll be chapter 10, the better promises we'll see in chapter 12, uh, well, as well as here. But uh, all these better things. So that's that's how we've uh, titled this entirety of the book, Greater and Better in Christ. So here in verse 6, uh, a more excellent ministry, the mediator of a better covenant, and it's all on better promises. So Moses was the great mediator, the great one who was the bridge between God and man, God's special friend, God's special spokesman, but he doesn't hold a candle to God's own beloved son, uh, the one who was uh, certainly man and very God, the one who was Emmanuel, God with us, the one who truly showed us God and then takes us to the presence of God. That is an effective mediator, and it's all by this better covenant that we have this uh, better uh, new covenant, this new testament, this new way. For the first covenant had been faultless. Now, the comparison here is just between uh, the law, things of the law and the things of the gospel. We know there are actually there were several covenants given over time, but this isn't the history of all covenants. It's uh, simply a comparison between the two great ones, the law and the gospel. If this first covenant had been faultless, you know, and, and that was the position the Jews had in Jesus's day and were holding out to the Christians, that the law was all you need, right? I know the Beatles said the love is all you need, but the Jew would say the law is all you need. And they, they searched the scriptures for in them they thought they had life, but Jesus says, no, these actually bear testimony of me. And we're going to see that here in this quote uh, from Jeremiah. So they thought in the law they had all that they needed. But as Paul said in Galatians 3, he said, uh, for the, uh, the law had been, for if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, righteousness would have indeed been based on the law. Well, righteousness is not on the law. Uh, in Romans and Galatians in particular, it said that, that no flesh is justified by works of the law. And so for life, we need something else. And we've been studying at length on Sunday mornings, the Gospel of John, and what is offered there for us for life. It's belief in Jesus, isn't it? By believing, we may have life in his name. Now, I realize we go through the entirety of the gospel. We'll find a number of things of which uh, our uh, life is attributed to, 
Uh, it's connected to baptism, certainly. It's connected to repentance. It's connected to endurance. It's connected to uh, faithfulness. All of these things are based, though, in our trust in Jesus Christ, and they avail nothing without that. So if that first covenant had been faultless, and they thought it was, but they didn't follow it anyway, right? As we'll see down in verse 9, they did not continue in my covenant, so I did not care for them, uh, says uh, the Lord. Well, we're going to need something else. So now this is where in verse 8, we go to that long quote of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. So we're going to have um, four verses. Again, I think it's the longest single block of quotation in uh, the New Testament from the Old. If it's not this, it might be the quotation from Psalm 95 found earlier in this book, but I think it's this. So here we have a, a uh, the gospel preached in the book of Jeremiah for finding fault with them. I think that them means primarily finding fault with the people, uh, as the quote from Jeremiah will say, but also uh, the law had its fault in the sense of it was weak and useless in making people perfect. And so finding the fault, may we may say, I think, was both in the law in its ability and in the people in their fidelity. But verse 8, finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And we notice at the time that this was given, there really wasn't effectively a house of Israel anymore. Right, The ten tribes had gone into captivity and were gone. Sometimes Judah was called Israel, but almost by old habit, it seems, because, yes, they certainly uh, were the house uh, who descended from Jacob, also known as Israel. But really, there were just the two tribes left. And so we call that little kingdom Judah, right? But for Judah and for Israel, so God's not going to forget any of the people, no matter where they're from or how long they've been gone. I'm going to bring a new covenant with all the house, the, the one that's gone and the one that's going. Because this prophecy of Jeremiah is just months before, right on the cusp of the people going into Babylon in captivity. And it's a promise that God says, I'm not going to forget you and I'm not going to forsake you. Yeah, you're fixing to go to a place of punishment. You're fixing to go not fully to the iron furnace of Egypt again. But you are going to go to a place where you're going to have to learn and reform, and we're only going to bring back from there a faithful remnant, but we're bringing back a faithful remnant. A faithful remnant's coming back, and I'm going to work something with them that would be incredible to you. And it'll be, as a matter of fact, it'll be a new covenant. You guys haven't liked this old covenant very well, and you haven't really prospered in it. That's why captivity's coming, Jeremiah is saying. But God's promising a new thing for these folks. Now, they would have to patiently wait for it. It would be near as to 650 years before that covenant came. So it's going to be a long time coming. But uh, how long do we wait on the pat uh, patiently on the promises of God? Well, until they come. But if he promised, what's going to happen? He will deliver. And in this case, he did deliver. But certainly, by their perspective, <coughs> it took a while because they're going to go to 70 years of captivity and they're going to come back under the law. They're going to be under governors and they're going to be under some prophets for a while, for 150 years or so, after they get back. And then after Malachi, God's just going to stop talking to them. 
I'm not going to have to sort it out under what he's already said without continual reference and without continual uh, renewal by the hands of prophets. And what they're going to end up with is the gospel time situation that we see. Uh, uh, people fractured, uh, people under Pharisees and under Sadducees, and a bunch of people having kind of given up the whole enterprise entirely, except there's still uh, ethnic Jews who live as Jews. Because, well, I mean, you are a Jew, what else are you going to do? And so it's going to be a while. And But then God, the greatest act of mercy, will send Christ, and Christ will go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's going to call them back, all who are sick. He's going to be their physician. And then he's going to go to other sheep who are not of this fold, and he's going to make with them this great covenant too. And all this is things that God has set up. All right, back to the text, verse 9. This new covenant coming. New, and again, it directly calls it a new covenant in verse 8. In verse 9, this new covenant, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. When I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Of course, that's the work of Moses. They go out to the desert. They get the law written on the tablets. For they did not continue my covenant, and I did not care for them. You know, that doesn't sound like a good start to a promise of a new covenant. All right, y'all didn't like the last one. Let me see. You know, you just see what I'm going to give you now. But it's not given a threatening way like that, or as we might do. It's given with great hope. It's given in a different way. This first covenant, you guys, as Peter himself by inspiration would say, this was a burden that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. We didn't do so well with that covenant. But luckily, God gave us a different one that we might do better and with and do better under. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. All right, so here's the new thing. I'll put my law into their minds, and I'll write them on their hearts. How'd the old covenant come? Tables of stone, right? Famously, Moses. Uh, how do we most picture Moses? Either, you know, with his hands up, uh, uh, directing people uh, through the Red Sea, right? He's got his hands up and saying, uh, uh, part sea, let's go. Or uh, we picture Moses carrying these two tablets of stone, right? That's what Moses uh, is, is most pictured for, uh, either hands up, uh, bringing them through the, the water, or uh, hands full of stone tablets, bringing them the law. That's Moses' great work. He brought them the law on these tablets. He brought them the very words of God written by the finger of God. Of course, he immediately smashed them because he was so irate with their idolatry while he was getting that message, right? And God had to give him some replacements, which they then kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And that went well until they lost it. But how does God's law come? It comes in, the old law comes in tables of stone. Well, the, where's this new law going to be? Written in the heart and the mind. You know, written in the law, or the law is written in the hearts and the minds. It is it, taken internally. It's taken by faith, not by an earthly inheritance. The, the kind of people that are saved under this law, the kind that Peter describes in 1 Peter 1, that in obedience to the truth, we purified our souls for a sincere love of the brethren, so we fervently love one another from the heart, having been born again of a seed that is not perishable, but imperishable. So an imperishable seed that grows in our hearts, the word of God, right? The parable of the sower, what is it? Seed 
that goes where? Into good and honest hearts. And so this law of the heart and the mind. And then we have a continuation and an expansion of one of the greatest promises of the Old Testament. I will be their God and they will be my people. Over 200 times, really starting in the book of Exodus. There's some in Genesis 2, but uh, we have this description of these are my people, right? God says, I have seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. And so go tell Pharaoh what? Let my people go. And so here now you are going to be my people. Uh, The fullness of this is stated in Leviticus 26. It's quoted twice in the New Testament here and in 2 Corinthians 6 applied to the those faithful in Christ and the church. But Leviticus 26, this promise, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so that you would not be their slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. I set you free for you to walk with me. That's what God told Israel. And now he says, as they're going to captivity, I will be your God, right? Most of them at the time of captivity, he was willing and offering to be their God, but they weren't being his people. They were being idolatrous to a terrible degree. That's why he sent them to captivity. But there's going to be a new covenant where that part is renewed. And we see it renewed in Christ And we see it broadened in Christ so that all of faith can be his people and he walk with them and they with him. And then verse 11, and they will not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord. Well, you you had to keep telling like Jeremiah did. Jeremiah had to keep telling the people, you guys got to follow Jehovah. Let me tell you about our God. And what did Isaiah tell him? What, What did Ezekiel have to tell him in captivity? What did Elijah and Elisha tell them before they went to captivity? Over and over, there was this message of, you guys need to know who God is, right? Elijah and the prophets of Baal on top of the mountain. If God is God, serve him. And if Baal is God, serve him. But pick one, pick a God, people. And let me tell you about why you should pick Jehovah. But in the new covenant, we don't have to tell our fellow saints that. We don't have to tell our fellow brethren in the covenant that. Partly because how do you get into this new covenant? You get here by faith. We do teach people all the time. We teach them saying, know the Lord. We try to teach them Jehovah God. We try to teach them the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? But who are we teaching that to? To our fellow citizens and our brethren? Man, something's wrong if we have to do that, right? Every now and again, you need a brother who needs a remedial course in the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who are real participants of the covenant, they're already there. They come in by faith. You have to know God to come in, and he invites you in if you know him and have faith. So they will all know me from the least to the greatest. So from your day one baptized believer to your saint ready to end his walk in the Lord, every one of these people know the Lord. That's this covenant. Under the old covenant, what did you have to do? You had to teach covenant members because when did you become a member of the covenant? Well, eight days old. You had to be taught. 
from uh, to covenant, covenant members had to be taught to know about God. And now we do the teaching before you're in the covenant. If you want to be with God, having known God, then you can come. But that is a different change in character, isn't it? So we as the Christian church, we're not responsible for the moral situation of the entire community. Now, as those who love their neighbors and want them to avoid the judgments of God and, and see God's blessing, yes, we are under the obligation of the Great Commission to take the gospel to them. But it's not like the old covenant system where the prophets had to deal with all the worst reprobates in town, and they're responsible for every wayward member of the entire community uh, of the Jews, and sometimes, well, like the time of Jesus, some of those terrible and wayward people were the head of the community. It wasn't. It's not like that in the church because we all will know the Lord. And then, as we had said, it's great promises. How about this promise to end it all? Verse twelve: I'll be merciful to their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. Full forgiveness. God says, I will be merciful and I won't remember. It's not that he won't know we did it, right? Because God's omniscience knows all our sin. But God will be kind enough not to mark it down and not to bring it up because it would be forgiven and removed. And the law, as we'll find in chapter 10, could not do this. Those sacrifices which they did, which were only a copy of the good things to come, Hebrews 10.1, they weren't the very form of it. They can never, by the same sacrifices offered year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have been ceased to be offered. Well, Christ has made perfect. And then what did he do? Well, as we saw in verse 1, he sat down because the work was done. And so the iniquities, the sins are fully dealt with. The one true payment for sins was made in the sacrifice of Christ, and it brings with it full forgiveness. So that's the more excellent ministry that the, the priest under the law could never do. That's the better covenant, that which is done in Christ. And here's the better promises, primarily and firstly, full forgiveness, and then a host of other blessings to follow. So that's what God set up, and God was planning to set that up. He said 650 years in advance, this is what I'm going to do. None of the Jews should be surprised that they believe Jeremiah. They should believe Christ. Now, if Christ has sat down and God has set this plan up, what about that old way? Well, that's what God's going to take down. Verse 13, when he set a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. And whatever's becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to disappear. At the time of the writing of the Hebrew letter, if we're correct in our date, it's only about six or seven years, and it might have been quite a bit shorter than that, until that Old Testament system based around the temple was going to be destroyed by the Romans as punishment on that society for their rejection of the Messiah and their murder of him, for their mistreatment of the saints, both before and after the time of Christ. And there was a vengeance and a judgment that was going to come. It was obsolete. It wasn't taking care of sins before Christ came, really. But after Christ came, 
How much was it seen to be totally empty? And yet people still persisted, but God ended it. And so tonight, the excellent ministry of Christ, that he has saved us and can sit down at the right hand of the throne of God and one day welcome us to that very place where we can join him and rule and reign with him. And so he is sitting and we are enjoying what God has set up for us. And this old system, we have to study in the history books because God took it down. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Malvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.